New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In the study of meditation, there are those who have demonstrated that sustained long-term practice can alter the brain markedly. These changes of brain foster changes of mind, bringing greater resilience and well-being. It's said that even brief meditative practices can change areas of the brain involved with attention, body awareness, emotional regulation, and a sense of self. Today we'll be exploring the practical synthesis of wisdom and science and how the brain, mindfulness, and meditation are interconnected as we uncover some practical practices that will lead us to insights that free us from needless suffering and conflict with our guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen is a psychologist who holds a deep interest in neuroscience and mindfulness. He's a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and creator of the year-long course, The Foundations of Well-Being. He's the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom and speaks to groups at Google, NASA, Oxford, and Harvard. He's the author of many books, including Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness, and Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Join us for the next hour as we explore the marriage of ancient wisdom and modern science with our guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Rick, welcome. Justine, it's such a pleasure to be here again, truly from my heart. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to sit across from you. And this newest volume here, <laughs> oh my goodness, I mean, it just really stretched and moved me and deepened me. Um, so I, first of all, I'd like to talk about the title, Neurodharma. Some people may not be in, uh, know about the word dharma, and what do you mean by dharma? Yeah, it's a, originally an Indian term from the country India, and it means essentially the way it is, or an account of the way it is, hopefully with some wisdom added. 
and I strung it together with neuro uh, for two reasons. One is to appreciate that we can know ourselves in two ways, from the inside out, experientially, and from the outside in, objectively, neurologically, through the lens of science. And the meeting of those two ways of knowing ourselves is what I think of as neurodharma. Also, in terms of how to know ourselves experientially, uh, the main source of that uh, that I'm drawing on is the Buddha's deep analysis of the mind from 2,500 years ago. Down to earth, practical, not metaphysical, not mystical, woo-woo, very psychological, and like a laser piercing through our cloudy, distracted states of consciousness to what's really going on. So for me, this book is really a kind of homage. It's out of deep respect for the contemplative traditions around the world. It's out of deep respect for the scientific understanding of our bodies and our nervous systems and our brains. And honestly, out of deep respect for the upper reaches of human potential. This book's really about exploring the highest reaches of what's possible all the way out to full awakening. And I think for me, it's partly timely because uh, having come of age in the 70s when there was a lot of interest in self-actualization, human potential, the greening of America, counterculture, and so forth, I feel like in the last 10, 20 years, we've gotten kind of so distracted and so overwhelmed and stressed, 9-11, um, the rise of the right wing, authoritarianism, uh, just the ugliness of political life, that we've lost sight of the snowy peaks, the upper reaches of human potential. And even if we're spending most of our days in the dusty plains or on the foothills, still, I think it changes your life and your day to keep in mind the higher possibilities that you're gradually moving toward. And for me, this book is, is about how to do that. Excellent. And and you give many examples of meditations in that it's just chock full of all sorts of practical mm. advice. And but speaking of, of Buddhist truth, let's say, so one of the more difficult concepts is the Buddhist truth. Life is suffering. <laughs> okay. What I loved that you represented in that when you talked about that part is that the nervous system is always attempting to stabilize, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's like life is suffering, and then our nervous system is just predisposed to, to kind of nail things down and make them stable and, and figure them out and evaluate. And uh, speak to that, what, when, what you mean about life is suffering and how can we really cope with that? Well, call things is great. Um, so what the Buddha basically said in, in his four so-called noble truths, which, um, as you know, could be better translated as four ennobling truths. They are the truths for the noble ones because we're drawn to them by what's noble within us, and we develop what's noble within us in the best sense of that word through practicing with these truths. So we have these ennobling truths, the first one of which is there is suffering. Now, others mistakenly have said life is suffering when, in fact, most of life is actually not suffering. Life itself is an abstraction. It's not suffering. And the physical objects that make up a living body, cells are not suffering. So suffering is a really small part of most human consciousness. 
And yet, it's an inescapable part because, as you were getting at, there's this collision between what Mother Nature needs to do, what biology needs to do to stay alive, to avoid pain, you know, hold on to pleasure, live to see the sunrise, and keep things uh, partitioned that want to merge together and keep things stable that are continually changing. That's the requirement of life. And inevitably, poignantly, we're going to fail. So I think there are two takeaways here. One is to come to peace with the inevitability of, of pain and suffering. The loss of your friends, worries about your country, the world altogether, uh, aging, illness, your own eventual death, is to find a way to come to terms with that. That's the takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, though, is watch out for add-on suffering. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Add-on suffering. Yeah, right. yeah, the Buddha used the metaphor of the second darts that we throw ourselves. The first starts of life are things like physical pain or losing loved ones, facing your own death. But the second darts are our reactions to that primary suffering or pain. And like getting angry about feeling hurt or getting mad at the coffee table because somehow it moved into the middle of the floor and you bumped into it in the middle of the night, right? As if it could <laughs> yeah. walk there on its own. Right. That's add-on suffering. And a lot of what the book's about is how to disengage from add-on suffering and to alter its deep roots inside your own psychology over time, in part related to your childhood, and also to cultivate. How do we cultivate resilience, happiness, contentment and love in such a way that that increasingly is where we dwell rather than in our angry or frightened or or hurt reactions to the stuff around us. So I know that when uh, in cultivating that, it's, it's more than just rising above it or uh, I, there's that term spiritual bypassing right. that, that we, okay, we'll just... Uh, pretend like it doesn't exist yeah. or however we deal with it and we just sort of but it but then there are those who would argue yeah but how how do we work in a way that's benefiting all of life and how do we keep working with that in in a grounded way so it, these are the things that we're grappling with when we think of of suffering and alleviating it mm. Yeah, um, I really appreciate that the Buddha started with suffering. It's so humble and modest and earthy and real and grounded. And I think that's where we have to begin. But it's not where we end. He himself was described as the happy one. The end of suffering is not some sort of grim or numb stoicism. The end of suffering is replacing it with love and wisdom and joy. Really important. And actually, as we cultivate these various inner strengths, virtues, such as patience or respect for others, commitment to social justice, caring about non-human animals, on and on it goes. Gratitude, our own well-being. As we cultivate these things in ourselves, cultivate our own mindfulness, cultivate the mind trainings that we can do, we become much more resilient. We become tougher. We recover faster from loss and trauma, and we become much more able to overflow abundantly to help other people. So how does this work with brain science? Because you are kind of immersed yeah. in both. So yeah. how does this work with brain science? Well, that's great. Well, number one, one of the great 
brain science findings is that we've got a negativity bias. That's the fancy term for it, which really means I say we've got a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. In other words, routinely, we look for bad news, overfocus on it, overreact to it, and overremember it. And then along the way, through the activity of the stress hormone cortisol, we become sensitized to irritating, worrying, painful, hurtful experiences. We become more prickly, more reactive down the it, road. It like attracts our attention, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. It attracts our attention, and then we get preoccupied with it. Yeah. A lot of research about this. So yeah. one of the key takeaways here is to appreciate how poignantly, weirdly, we're kind of designed to suffer in order to survive. And this makes biological sense back in the Stone Age, back in Jurassic Park. But today, these features of the brain are hijacking us and carrying us away much of the time. And in part, because we overlearn from the negative experiences, which is what our brain is trying to make us do, uh, it crowds out the learning we could be having, the growing, the cultivation we could be having from very authentic experiences of friendliness, gratitude, uh, insight into ourselves, Exactly. Uh, well, we'll talk more about this in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's the author of Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, rickhansen.net. That's rickhansen.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's the author of Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And what you were saying about being hijacked, mm -hmm. you know, where nature has created this way that we're just kind of hijacked for this negative bias. Yeah. And it just like dawned on me as you were saying that, okay. That has been true for humankind for 300,000 <laughs> years in our species. Yes. Wild to yes. think of that. Yes. But now we're in an it's seemingly new time of, as Barbara Marx Hubbard, the late Barbara Marx Hubbard would say, we're in a, in a conscious evolution 
part of our evolving. Like we're being asked by this front edge of consciousness to be different from that. Is it, am I reading that right? Do you, do you feel that something is being asked of humankind that has never been asked before? Oh, yeah. And there are a couple of key examples. So one is to really realize that until just kind of a blink of the eye, 10,000 years ago, when agriculture started coming in, all humans who have ever lived and all of our hominid ancestors for another couple million years before that, yet smart enough to make stone tools, all of them lived in bands of 40 to 50 people their entire lives, small bands. So if you walk into a restaurant, you see roughly 80 people there, that's two bands worth. Right? <laughs> Over 10,000 years ago. Right? Yeah, yeah, but in terms of natural human structure. So yeah. here we are today in a country like America, 310, 320 million people. Think how many bands that is and how we have to expand our notion of us to include more and more of them. And one of the things I think a lot about is how inside these small bands, there were objective conditions that led to decent politics, decent governance, self-governance, good decision-making. And those three objective conditions were common truth, common welfare, and common justice. When you live together for your whole life with the same 40, 50 people, um, you can't hide things, common truth. Your welfare is tied together, including through ties of kinship and blood and common justice. Uh, the, while there are differentials of power in Stone Age bands, sooner or later, if your leader's a jerk, stuff's going to happen, including everybody else saying, see you later, idiot boss. Yeah, We're yeah, out of here. The, the tribe won't thrive. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Common truth, common welfare, common justice. But as soon as you start having larger social groups, towns, cities, empires, or you know, countries like America, then those natural conditions that regulated us disappear. And it's really easy for authoritarianism to rise up uh, and then become stronger and stronger in, in vicious cycles over time. So one of the challenges of the day to me is to learn how to reestablish those objective conditions of healthy human politics, notably common truth. And you can see how authoritarians attack truth uh, as fast as they can, whether it's in a family system, a bully in a school, or a president in a White House. And that's why we have to stand up for truth really vigorously. So, Rick, this is the importance of your work mm. because you are saying, you know, all right, it is not just a little practice that we can do. This is for humankind that we should be doing some of these practices. I mean, you you talk about seven, actually. Yeah. You bring up seven practices uh, that we can do. And and I'd like to go through s some of them. I'm not sure we can get through all of yeah. them in detail. But, but the first three practices you lump together, kind of. But can you speak about those to oh, begin yeah. with? And I think if this goes back to a classic false dichotomy, you know, we're kind of similar generation between the personal and the political. It's not either or. Just because someone's working on the political doesn't mean they are oblivious to the personal level. And just because someone's working on the personal by reading a book or meditating or listening to this program doesn't mean that they're not politically engaged. And in fact, as we work on the personal, we're more able to influence the political. And as we improve the political, 
that creates better conditions for the personal. So really, it's not either or. And I think this time more than ever calls for people to be clear and strong and centered and stable, no matter what's swirling around them. So can I tell you the seven practices? I'll just oh, summarize okay, them for please. you. Yeah, let's do that for our listeners. Absolutely. Yeah, the origin of this for me is is to imagine people who are farther along the path of awakening broadly in all the world's traditions. You know, I'm trained in Buddhism. I was raised a casual Christian. There are many traditions. There's Christian contemplative practice. There's secular humanism. First people, indigenous people, their shamanic, let's say, practices, Sufism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many roots up the mountain of awakening, up toward the pinnacle of human potential where those roots tend to converge. Okay. But on all of those roots, we see the same seven steps, seven ways of being that are perfected, I think, in the saints, the sages, the great teachers, uh, as well as many people who are deeply realized, but they're not famous. So through studying the example of these people, we can kind of reverse engineer back for ourselves, whoa, how can I cultivate more and more of that inside me, including, here's the neuro twist, based on really exciting things we're learning about how the body and the brain operate that we can use in practical ways that are throughout my book. It's a super practical book. It's very experiential. It's very practice-oriented. It's really a how-to book. Um, We can draw on what we're learning about the body that is happening when people are entering deep, wonderful, profound states of consciousness, including ourselves. So that's the frame. So for me, these seven qualities are, and I'll just name them, and people can kind of feel them, steadiness. You're steady, you're mindful, you're present. Second, lovingness. Your heart is open, you're compassionate, you're kind. You see others clearly, you engage in conflict if you had to, but you never let hatred invade your heart. Third, fullness, a sense of equanimity, emotional balance, contentment already. You already feel at peace in the core of your being, even when you're challenged. Those are the first three. Steadiness, lovingness, and fullness. They kind of hang together. The next three also hang together. They might they sound a little more subtle, and yet we can all have a taste of them, which we can develop through practice again and again. The sense of wholeness. You're whole. You're not in conflict with yourself. You're not divided. You're not suppressing all kinds of things down in the basement somewhere. And you're more rested in being, not so caught up in stressful doing. That's wholeness. Nowness, right in the present resting right at the front edge of now, receiving the moment continuously, even as you release it utterly. Being here now, really, that's nowness. That's the fifth practice in the book. Then the sixth practice, I call it opening into allness. It's a sense of being connected with everything. It's the feeling of what we know intellectually, that we are a local expression of the entire universe, but it's really feel it with boundaries softening, including all the way out into profound experiences in which the sense of self falls away and the world, the universe, everything shines forth in radiant perfection. That's allness. And then last, timelessness. I think everyone has an intuition of that which is spacious or still or absolute, full of possibility, maybe edging beyond ordinary reality into something genuinely transcendental. The Buddha referred to this as 
unconditioned or the unconditioned, distinct from ordinary conditioned reality. So those are the seven practices, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, wholeness, and timelessness. And in each one of them, I show people how to really develop themselves in this way. So the book is certainly an invitation for someone just beginning in their practice, while also being a no-holds-barred shot for the upper reaches, for the summit, drawing on the greatest wisdom and the greatest teachers that I know. I know that when you talk about meditation, one of the analogies you use is um, tending a garden. Maybe mm. this this applies to maybe the first three. I'm not sure, uh, but but tending a garden that you know the first one you uh, you could observe the garden. Do you do you recall oh, yeah. how let you me, use this? Yeah, well, so me, it's a great metaphor, and it relates to something we said earlier. So I think there are basically three ways to practice that all the techniques, methods, etc., fall into these three kind of buckets. One is just be with your experience. Feel it, experience it, investigate it, explore it, relate to it skillfully. You're not trying to change it, though. You're just simply being with it. That's fundamental. It's the most profound of all. Second way to engage your mind is to let go of what's negative, what's harmful for you and others. Let go of tension in your body. Let go of thoughts that make you crazy. And the third is to let in, is to grow the good. Cultivate compassion, resilience, grit happiness, and so forth. All three are important. All three are applied to each one of these seven practices. I tend to focus primarily myself on cultivation. You know, if your mind is like a garden, like you said, yes. the first way to practice is to witness the garden. Just be with the garden. Second is to pull weeds, let go of what's problematic, prevent it, release it, decrease it. And third, grow flowers. Plant those seeds and protect them and water them. And if there's one takeaway for me from the recent brain science, it's to appreciate the ways in which our brain, and therefore our mind, is very fertile soil for weeds. That's its negativity bias. And that's why it's really important to help the, the flowers, to, to cast seeds of flowers on your mental garden and then help them grow and use flowers to crowd out weeds over time. Not because weeds are bad, but because we're interested in a life that's not afflicted with suffering and all kinds right. of neurotic reactions to others. Uh, and it's, it's more of a life, again, toward the upper reaches of human potential, that's full of a kind of profound contentment and a radiant, spacious lovingness toward other people. And so in in working with these three like different ways um how does it all then I I know that you in your previous books you you talk about installing mm-hmm. and and uh, yeah. neuroplasticity and installing these good things like yeah. when you're saying planting new things yeah. so you're saying there's a way you call it the heal yeah. process H E A L heal process and you yeah. you really kind of describe that very in a lot of detail in a previous book and I encourage people to look at that and how how they, those brain, brain synapses that wire together, fire fire together, that wire together, yeah. and all of that. Uh-huh. So we we do want to install right. these new 
ideas and these new practices and these this edge of consciousness that is yeah. going to be more beneficial not only to ourselves but to all life. Yeah, we're trying to stabilize these new ways of being. We're trying to grow into being what and who our heart longs to be. Now, what that may be is an uncovering of what was always already true. Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, but um, either way, yeah, it's yeah. a developmental process. Okay. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's the author of Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, rickhansen.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Now, Rick, one of the analogies you used that just, I just, it just was thrilling. Uh, you talk about um, life, like describing our beingness is like, and our consciousness is like eddies in a river. Yeah. You know, that, that, that you, you give it this, I, a visual, <laughs> way of saying, okay, these eddies appear and they swirl and then they disappear. And so tell us about the how we're eddies in the river, okay? Help us. Well, think about, in a way, two things that are both real, which are, let's say, physical objects like a cloud or a stone. They're material. They're real. Also, think about uh, an image or a sensation or a thought. Those are real, too. Uh, sensations, images, thoughts, information exchanging back and forth between people are not tangible. They're unlike clouds and stones, and yet they're still really real. So we have here these two aspects of ordinary reality, matter and mind, broadly stated. And so in both of those, they have remarkably the same nature. The nature of a thought and the nature of an atom are exactly the same. What is that deep nature? The deep nature inherently is that they're transient, they're impermanent, they are made of parts, they're compounded, and they are uh, dependently arising. They, they exist in relation with their causes and conditions. And so in a kind of technical sense, they are 
empty. That's the word that's used. It's a little fuzzy word. They are empty of solidity. They are empty of absolute self-causing existence. So, like, are, are you saying, like, if we're talking about, like, I see you mm-hmm. across from me, yep. right, in this moment. Yeah. But what you're saying, if I got down to the molecular structure of you, you, it's just that the energy is a little more densely dense than my thought of you. Does that make sense? Yeah. The uh, uh, this is a deep Buddhist idea. Um, the in the notion of shunyata, in other words, of of emptiness, and it's not that it's void. So I so let's say I I'll do it with you. I'm looking at you right now, someone I feel warmly toward, and I recognize that what's happening in my experience is not a perfect representation of you. In other words, my eyes are selecting a tiny fraction of the whole electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, My brain is constructing an image of you. And there's a lot of research on optical illusions that if we did certain things, it would make the color of your hair look different from what it actually is because my brain would make up an illusion. So I'm having an experience of you. So let's separate out my experience of your physical body from what I infer from that experience is that there's actually, I'm going to touch you now, a physical object there, right? right? So clearly experiences are kind of swirly. If I were to just sit and look at you, fairly soon the image would start to vibrate and shift around. It's kind of pixelated. And so as an experience, it has those features that are summarized in Buddhist teachings as empty. But really, to go to this eddy in a stream idea, I look at you and I realize, wow, Justine is continually changing. She's dynamic. She's like a swirling pattern. It's organized for a time, right? Uh, seven, whatever, six score and 10 or whatever the natural age of a person is. You know, and then after a while, the body swirls away. And meanwhile, I have thoughts about you. I come over here uh, to see you and I look forward to it. I'll drive home and I'll think about it. Those thoughts are like eddies. Eddies are just yeah. swirling patterns that coalesce for a while and then disperse again. And for me, it's been, wow, it has been liberating to really appreciate that everything is like an eddy in the stream. Some eddies are really slow, like El Capitan, or, uh, you know, <laughs> the that's milk. in Yosemite. Yeah, right? in Yosemite that Valley. Big rock, yeah, big uh, slog. And yet, yeah. I've known people who were climbing on El Capitan, clipping, you know, climbing above a little crack in it, a horizontal crack, clipping to bolts above the horizontal crack, hanging from stirrups on those bolts above the horizontal crack, when the sheet of rock they had just climbed on <laughs> broke away from El Capitan and fell a thousand feet to the valley floor. Even too, El Capitan is changing. It's an eddy in the stream. And then you have atoms and molecules and thoughts and the eddies of neural activity that support the eddies of information that enable eddies of experience and consciousness. Wow. And when you relate to it all like that, to me at least, it brings one into um, a sense of freedom and lightheartedness in relationship to it, while also being heartfelt and touched by so much sorrow 
in so many eddies and move to do what we can about them, but with an inner peace yes. along the way. So that that brings me like uh, maybe opening to allness. You cool know, stuff. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, there are 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 no edges. To allness, you 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 say something. You you quote Richard Miller in your book. You say, um, "Let's see." Uh, Miller Miller puts forth an awe-inspiring way to imagine that each moment of our lives is being made at the front edge of the expansion of the universe. With each breath, we can witness creation of new time. I mean, that just sort of blew my mind, Rick. All right, wait, right. Okay, so this allness, or even even partly the newness or nowness, yeah, yeah. Uh, is that each moment of our lives is at this front. If we are in the now, it's this front edge of of this expansion of the universe, and that's all it is. That's all we have. And but of course we dwell in the past and we regret yeah. things and yeah. we think about the future and we do need to make plans so yeah. that's not a bad thing but if we're kind of attached to those and get bogged down from that yeah. then is it really beneficial to our lives and the lives of others? Oh, so great! Yeah, you know the the great teachers, Eckhart Tolle or Ramdas, bless his soul, um, or the Buddha. Talk about being in the present. All right. So if we imagine people who are really in the present and then kind of work backwards from it, how do they do it? And what in the world is going on in their brain when they're continually in the present? So a little technique people can use that's really grounded in science is wonderful, is to focus on the sense of being alerted to whatever is new, whatever is occurring right now with a feeling of updating the field of consciousness. And so if we focus on, like you're, you're moving, you're reaching for a pen right now, things are changing. If we focus on what's changing around us, that naturally engages an attention circuit in the brain that focuses on being alerted to whatever's new rather than caught up in ruminating about this or that or trying to solve some problem or other, right? So if you just more and more approach life with the sense of it's being continually updated, with a freshness continuously, which has qualities, of course, of the eyes of a child or beginner's mind or don't know mind. But the more you train in what, the, what that feels like and the more you can kind of hang out there. Sometimes you need to step out of the, in, the instantaneous moment to get something done, right? Or reflect right. on the past yeah. or whatnot. But much of the time, you can just kind of hang out in the freshness of the moment, which as that physicist, Richard Muller at UC Berkeley talks about, very plausibly, the present moment is simply the expansion of the four-dimensional space-time Big Bang universe. That's what he was getting at. The universe is expanding. New space is being continually created. But the universe is so vast, we can't discern the creation of new space individually. Only highly technical ast astronomers can do that. On the other hand, if it's really a four-dimensional space-time universe, we can witness the expansion of new time, the creation of new time, just like you said, 
continuously in the present. So, Rick, how does this help us? Let's say mm -hmm. we're politically involved and we have yeah. a preference about yeah. uh, how things should go. Mm -hmm. How does this uh, updating nowness, mm. uh, how does it help us to work with something, let's say, like politics? Yeah, it's great. Well, for one, it's the immediate circuit breaker for helpless outrage. There's a place for helpless outrage, but to marinate it in it, as many, many people do for minutes or hours each day, is not good uh, for individual health and well-being. And it is dispiriting, and it undermines effective political action. And one of the things that happens when you come really close to the emergent edge of now, the, the front edge of now, think of consciousness as like a windshield with some thickness to it. Uh, the subjective present is typically around one and a half seconds long, ballpark. Um, it has a kind of dense a thickness to it, right? Well, if you come really close to the very emergent front of that ongoing one to two second window or thickness of the windshield of consciousness, what starts to happen, and you can observe it directly, is that uh, suffering, ruminating, uh, fussing and feuding falls away because you're so close to being updated by whatever's new. Um, that's a very effective way to get out of helpless outrage rumination about grr, grr. Okay, so, so we have a thought, mm -hmm. something, something we hear, some yeah. piece of news, and we have a thought. And for a moment, mm -hmm. we're on the edge of the newness. Yep, exactly but right. But what we do in many cases, is that then we dwell on what we know went yep. before That's and right. what we remember about how we were feeling when yeah. and all of that stuff. So that enters in pretty quickly. But you're talking about that that moment when the newness yeah. just kind of, oh, delight. Yeah. There's delight Awe, there wonder. and wonder. So that's what all of this, these practices, the the steadying the mind, or or to to teach our to help ourselves be familiar with uh, the sustained attention to that moment of newness. Yeah, and have that capacity. Sometimes there's a place for ruminating about something. And the kind of ruminating comes from chewing your cut, right? Like right. the cows do. Yeah. You got to kind of chew on it. I'm a muller myself. You know? Oh, I, my goodness. We're, we're butting up against our time. Wait, hold, hold that thought. I'm so sorry. I just want to remind our listeners I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and you can feel I'm getting more and more excited about this conversation. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and we're really getting into it. And we're talking about ruminating. Uh, We were just talking about that before the break. So please continue with your thought there. Yeah. Sometimes it's important to be able to just go inside, you know, and think about things and, and feel them, right? And to have a heart that is soft enough to feel the weight of the cries of the world, you know, the weight of uh, the impacts on so many people, including many people who don't have the kind of privileges I have, and they are really impacted by the rise of authoritarianism in its various forms uh, in the world these days, including in America. And so we need to be able to do that. On the other hand, I think many, many people would say that they are routinely preoccupied uh, in a way that doesn't feel good and is not productive and it doesn't help them figure anything out or uh, move them to any action. It's just helpless outrage. Or alternately, people, and I know them, uh, turn a blind eye to politics because they don't want to get upset about it. And for me, the kinds of strengths that get developed through long-term practice, including in the practices in this book, and what you see in people who are farther up the mountain of awakening, broadly defined, uh, including farther along than I am, you see that they are tough as nails. They are strong. They don't suffer fools gladly. They're not afraid. They can't be cowed. They're not bowed. Uh, They may realize it in their role as, let's say, a monk under some dictator. They have, you know, limited opportunities to say what they see, but there's no fear inside their heart. I think that you give a a wonderful example of this, and it goes to that that second um, practice, which is uh, warming the heart and loving kindness. And you talk about experiencing a time with His Holiness the Dalai oh. Lama. But what you notice off to the side was this bodyguard. Yeah. So so I think that this kind of illustrates what That's you're great. talking great about. That's great. Great example. Yeah. Great example. Yeah. Thanks for going there. So uh, I lucked out. I got it to go to a conference where the Dalai Lama was present. This was 15 plus years ago. And because he's the head of state of an occupied nation— to bed. There was a lot of security around the event. So it was very strange to be at a nonviolent Buddhist center like Sphera Rock with a bunch of armed guards with attack dogs. And yet the guards were all laughing and joyful because of the occasion. It was wonderful. So um, I filed into a room with about 100 other people. After a few minutes, the Dalai Lama came in with his translator and another guy. And the Dalai Lama gave a wonderful talk. I don't remember any of it. I do remember <laughs> the other guy. He was an unprepossessing, looked like Tibetan, uh, wearing a suit. He filled it out. He looked kind of like a 40-year-old version of a middle linebacker in a college football team. (laughs) And he kind of moved like a dancer, and he stood off to the side, just smiling at everybody, no big deal, very humble, uh, radiating loving kindness, no sense of hostility or menace. And then he began to realize he was the Dalai Lama's ninja. He was there to take a bullet for him if he had to. And you could sense in this man this profound capability, black belts up the yin-yang probably, and yet no menace, no hostility. And he was for me an epitome of practice that he could be fully present, there to do a job, while being wide open to take in the whole room, not trying to create trouble with anyone, while clear about his own loyalties and what his job was if the chips were down. I was deeply moved by that. 
deeply touched by his example, including his his readiness to sacrifice himself, yeah. if need be. Yeah. So there it is. That's the practice. Yeah, that to both. stay in that loving kindness, even yeah. when we can feel, yeah. take in how people are suffering because of certain yeah. actions of others. And so it's not that we're not aware of that. Correct, entirely. But and, it, and we can develop these in ourselves. Like that ninja, that bodyguard, had trained and cultivated. He had grown many, many flowers in his mind. He had pulled many, many weeds. He had helped the flowers to crowd out the weeds over time. And that's incredibly hopeful, especially at a time these days when so many people feel kind of helpless, feel sort of pushed yes. around, futile, sense of despair. Yes. What use is it? In the last presidential election in 2016, do you know what percentage of young people age 18 to 25 voted? 15%. Yeah. 85% of them sat yeah, it out, even sat though out. they will most inherit the consequences, including for the And they said, climate. oh, it doesn't matter. It yeah, doesn't crazy. matter. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, instead of that, we can develop ourselves, which is so hopeful, through practices. You know, what you practice grows stronger. Uh, exactly. And that's why we need to practice. Exactly. Exactly. So being whole of the, mm. let's let's talk a little bit about wholeness i think about that as allowing we're receiving things without um attaching to it without you know grasping it somehow mm. but it doesn't mean that we're not receiving it so mm. we're we're opening to what is going on we're not uninformed yeah the, so the practice of being wholeness I call it being wholeness yes. I could have called it softening into wholeness as well it comes from research that's very powerful quick summary is that if a person is stressfully solving a problem yes or alternately spacing out mind wandering ruminating fantasizing daydreaming either way the networks in the brain that especially get involved are in the midline of the cortex. If you could just kind of draw a line from your forehead in the middle of the top of your head all the way to the back, it's roughly there. The front part of that circuitry is involved in task-oriented problem-solving. The rearward portion is the so-called default mode network that gets active when we're ruminating or just spacing out. It's useful to do some of that. But I think most people, me included, we say, we spend way too much time stressfully solving problems or worrying about stuff in the ruminator rather than dropping into a sense of stable presence, being here as a whole. When we do that, we use networks on the sides of our brain, especially the right side for right-handed people because that's the part of the brain that does holistic gestalt processing. And a lot of practice kind of boils down to getting out of the midline, in a sense, activation, especially getting out of the ruminator in the default mode and dropping into present moment awareness, which involves more circuits on the right side of your brain. Um, switch for many left-handed people. And I think you say that that if we just go into that place where the mind is wandering it tends to wander into the negative bias. Exactly right. Research shows the, the average person has a wandering mind about half the time. And 
for every person like you who's probably pretty steady, there's someone who's really got a distracted, wandering mind. And you're right. The more that a person's mind wanders, the more that it tends to wander into negative material. Exactly right. So it's Which then gets the reinforced. <laughs> yeah, you get sucked that. in the swamp, and then it gets reinforced, and so then you're more swamp-like and more vulnerable to swampiness. And then the whole, the whole, we get bombarded with all these uh, images of of fear. You yeah. know that that this is where we're supposed to live in fear, yeah. and that is huge. I mean, the media is just like pumping it out all yeah. the time. Our culture, it's just in the field. Yeah. And so we're we're really moving to change to really change the power of of a trajectory in our evolution. Well, the how of that is complex, right? Yeah. Um, it's clear to me what we can do at the individual level in terms of practice. And we can learn from the wisdom traditions and then apply it in our own lives. And respect, I think, the longing in everyone's heart for a fundamental inner peace, lovingness, and happiness. I think deep down inside, everyone wants that. Uh, people may go about it through narcissistic sociopathy, right, as an authoritarian <laughs> yeah. ruler, yeah. or people may go about it in other ways. But I think we all long for that. And I just think really for people of all ages, particularly for people who've got a little practice under their belt, you know, they've meditated a little bit, they've done some yoga maybe, maybe they've done a little therapy, or they've just reflected a lot. Okay, great. If you're interested in what's next, if you're interested in developing yourself further, if you're interested in really fulfilling your own potential, as the great teachers have called us to do throughout all the traditions and throughout all of history, well, this is the book for you that I tried to write. Right, exactly. And and that's what you're saying is that, hey, here we are, we have... We have a technology, let's yeah. say, that we can use in, mm-hmm. for this time yeah. to be really practical and be of true help. Yeah. It takes a lot because we want the authoritarian, we want yeah. the fences, and we want the person say, here's how to do it uh, in, in a certain way. But you're talking about something that is much bigger than that and more exciting, I might. I, oh, I totally oh, agree. And I, just really super fast. It's like, think about people you know that are models to you of strength with heart. They have an unshakable core. They feel it. Yeah. You'll see the Dalai Lama's face sorrowing. Yeah, You'll right. see, yeah. um, let's say, a kindergarten teacher that's yes. highly respected, right. uh, being upset about something, but really quickly coming back to center. Whoa. Thank you. Thank you for that. I've been speaking with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he is the author of Neurodharma, New Science ancient wisdom, and seven practices of the highest happiness. If you want to know more about his work, go to his website, rickhansen.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3699. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.